Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. From Live in the Balance, the nonprofit organization committed to advocating on behalf of behaviorally challenging kids and their caregivers, this is Dr. Ross Green. Welcome to Collaborative Problem Solving at School. I'm delighted that you were able to join in. This program airs live each Monday at 3.30 p.m. Eastern Time during the school year. We explore a variety of topics aimed at helping you better understand and help challenging students and implement the collaborative problem solving approach in your classroom and your school. If you have a question or comment, call 646-727-2691. If you call in, you'll be muted until I bring you on the air. And now, let's talk about challenging kids and how we can help them. Well, hey there. How are you today? Um, we in New England here on January 10th, 2011, are preparing for our next snowstorm. We are not looking forward to it. But um, there was just a uh, survey uh, on the website of the Boston Globe asking if um, two, two options for responses. Are you sick of the snow and do you want to move to Florida? Or um, uh, are you a hardy New Englander and snow doesn't phase you a bit? And uh, true confessions, I was raised in South Florida, so I don't even know if I count as a hardy New Englander, but um, I guess I do now. I chose that I'm a hardy New Englander and snow doesn't phase me a bit. Of course, that has absolutely nothing to do with this program. This is collaborative problem solving at school. Um, where we, every week, not next week, Martin Luther King birthday, so no program next week. Um, every week other than that, we get together to uh, talk about collaborative problem solving, school discipline, behaviorally challenging kids, and how we can all make it better than it is now. Uh, these are your 45 minutes, as always. So if um, your school uh, is interested in getting good at collaborative problem solving, if you're interested in getting good at collaborative problem solving, if you have a student you're trying to apply Plan B to, if you're trying to get the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems integrated into your school assessment practices, the Plan B flowchart into your school monitoring and prioritizing processes, trying to get your colleagues to buy in, this is the program. Uh, your opportunity to call in, comment, ask questions, get the support you need, excuse me, or just listen to what's going on with others who are using the collaborative problem-solving approach. If you want to call in, and uh, we may have a caller already. I think we do. Cool. Uh, callers take priority on this program. I've got a bunch of questions lined up from emailers, but um, Caller will be with you in just a second. If you want to call in, the call-in number is 646-727-2691. Once again, that is 646-727-2691. If you're not the calling-in type, 
just send me a question electronically through the contact form on the Lives in the Balance website, and that's www.livesinthebalance.org. Um, like I said, uh, we've got some questions lined up here, but I'm going to take our caller first because that's how we do things around here. We take callers first. So caller from it looks like area code, well, I'm not sure. It's either 723 or 972. Uh, you're on the air. How are you today? Hi, uh, it's Alan Katz. It's 972 is uh, as well. Yes, how are you today? I'm happy. Well, thanks. I just I became a grandfather two weeks ago, and it's pretty exciting. Congratulations. That that you, you, you caught me in a, with a mouthful of tea there. Otherwise, I would have said congratulations more quickly. Congratulations. Well, they say that you should become grandparents before parents. Because grandparents understand that uh, it's all about relationship and dialogue and questions and perspective taking, rather than control and uh, compliance. So, but well, this some, is par- some, parents, some parents get that too, and and some parents don't get. Some grandparents don't get it yet. But uh, yeah, yeah. What, what? Tell me what. Tell me what's on your mind today, Alan. Okay, my question is I've been looking at uh, social skills training and ADHD kids, and they talk about uh, the difference between a skills deficit and a performance deficit, that these kids know what to do, but when in the situation uh, they, they don't get it. And my question is also with a lot of uh, kids, uh, they, can, they we solve the problem, but because... Uh, when we solve problems, it's out of the moment. It's not in the midst of frustration. So it's not really uh, practicing or being in the ideal situation of of, of situation of frustration. And when we come into the situation of frustration, and these kids don't get it. So my basic question is: you know, Do you sort of agree with this uh, this distinction between performance deficit and skills deficit? Well, it's an interesting question. Um, with the kids that I work with, um, I'm not sure that uh, skills versus performance is the best way to slice the pie because I think that the vast majority of kids that I come across are lacking skills, so it's not a matter of do they have the skills. I find that they don't. But I do find that some of them can perform the skills under some conditions and not others in which case I don't know if we would call that a performance deficit or not. I prefer to divide the world the following way. I think that kids know how we want them to behave. Even the behaviorally challenging kids that I've worked with know how we want them to behave. And I would call that knowledge of um, what we adults are looking for, knowledge of the norms, knowledge of what's appropriate. The problem is, in, the challenge, in behaviorally challenging kids, they are lacking the skills, especially under certain conditions, to enact what they know. It's not necessarily that they know how. It's that they know what it is that we're looking for. But I find that, you know, because the, the premise of collaborative problem solving, the underlying philosophy is kids do well if they can, I think that kids want to do well and do want to do uh, what we adults believe is adaptive. They may have a difference of opinion, but um, generally speaking, they have a pretty good sense of what we're looking for. So in the knowledge of what we're looking for department, they are not lacking. In the do they have the skills 
to do what it is that they know we'd like them to do. I find that they are lacking those skills. The problem is life gets a little bit more. So, so do I think that behaviorally challenging kids have a deficit in skill? Absolutely. So in that respect, the performance versus skill deficit I don't think really holds up. But the interesting thing about behaviorally challenging kids is that under some conditions, it actually kind of looks like they do have the skills, and under some conditions, it actually looks like they kind of don't. So is that a performance deficit? Even then, I probably wouldn't call it a performance deficit. I would say that there is something, perhaps even something very subtle, about the demands that are being placed upon them. Even though they seem very similar from situation to situation, they aren't. There are subtle differences between what's being expected of them under one condition and what's being expected under another that set the stage for them to be able to handle it under one circumstance and not handle it under another. that answer your question? Yeah. So we need to talk about impulse, impulsiveness or hyperactiveness. Is that a... Is that a performance or is it like a skill to be able to no I'm just saying they say that social skills training doesn't help for ADHD kids because they have performance deficits as opposed to a skill deficit. yeah I know I know and that's I think that that's an old dichotomy that that I think you know I think that kids who are impulsive the the mere definition of impulsive is that the kid failed to consider the consequences of his actions before he acts. But that suggests that he understands the consequences of his actions before he acts. Otherwise, we wouldn't be calling it impulsiveness. So if he understands the consequences of his actions before he acts, and if he understands how we would prefer he behave, then once again, going back to my dichotomy, I think he has the knowledge that we're looking for. I think he's lacking the skills to perform what he knows. So, as you can tell, I kind of clump skills and performance deficit together. The main dichotomy for me is, does the kid know what we're looking for? Yes or no? The answer is almost always yes. Does the kid have the skills to perform what we're looking for when he needs to? The answer is either yes or no. In the case of behaviorally challenging kids, the answer is, under many conditions, no. So when, it comes to impulsiveness, yeah, when it comes to impulsiveness, I don't think they, in their moments, I don't think they're aware of the consequences. Well, but that's no, the very just, definition uh, of poor impulse control. If a kid calls out in class impulsively, but we talk to him afterwards or beforehand, and we say to him, should you call out in class without raising your hand? The answer will be no. So what that proves to us is that he knows he's not supposed to call out in class. If he should have happened to call out impulsively, thereby demonstrating to us that he is lacking the skill of impulse control, then he's simultaneously demonstrating to us that he is lacking the skills to perform what he knows. Does he know? But, he knows. But I, 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 I seem to think that he, he, can't, he doesn't, at that moment, he doesn't access the knowledge that uh, he shouldn't be uh, calling out. Well, that's exactly right. And the ability to access that knowledge, the ability to control one's impulses, so that one can access that knowledge, I would call that a skill. Yeah. Um, I've been looking at the social skills training, and the, the thing that uh, is pretty apparent is that most of the training is like is done top down in classrooms, and 
not taken, not uh, in a collaborative way. Um, number two, we uh, they don't take into account the kids' concerns, and problems will never be solved uh, if you if you teach skills without uh, in the context of of, of uh, concerns. Um, we aren't going to get very far. Well, thirdly, um, we. You're certainly talking okay. my language now, but I, I agree with you. The way a lot of skills training is done um, isn't highly individualized to the specific needs of an individual child. Um, isn't done in a way that takes the child's concerns into account. Um, isn't collaborative. I agree with you totally, and I, you know, I think that social skills are very difficult to train, but I think they're even more difficult to train when we're not doing it in a collaborative fashion. Also, another problem that I've found is that most uh, uh, research done on social skills pro uh, programs have had an element of of reward and punishment, or at least rewards. And that totally, according to Alfie Kahn and Jason Ryan, that totally undermines interest and intrinsic motivation and, and any type of learning that can take place. Well, and, um, um, you know, if you have a kids do all if they can mentality, then you believe that the kid doesn't need any added incentive to learn how to interact more adaptively socially. He's already highly motivated to interact more adaptively socially, so a reward and punishment program is not what he needs. And, yes, you're probably right. Alfie Cohn would uh, probably be uh, aligned with that point of view as well. Alan, I want to thank you for calling in today, um, all the way from Israel, and congratulations on um, your new granddaughter or grandson. Um, I'm going to turn my attention now to some questions that I've received over the last month or so. Uh, here we go. Um, hello, I'm working with a, this is the email, I'm working with a group of staff that are using CPS. Six to ten of our students have Asperger's disorder, and they are working on teaching replacement behaviors, oh boy, to meet the same function, oh boy, as the challenging behaviors. The oh boys, of course, are my editorial comment. When teaching a new skill is important, when teaching a new skill, it is important to reinforce it when you see it. The challenge they are facing is that they are unsure of how to incorporate both systems. And by both systems, I think that this emailer is saying um, reward and punishment and collaborative problem solving. Uh, do you have any suggested reading or ideas on how I can support these uh, staff that are using CPS and reinforcement in students with special needs? Uh, you know, I don't, um, because I don't try to combine the two. Um, these, the, the, uh, the, the wording of your email suggests that you and I are coming at this wearing uh, rather different lenses. And I talked about this in um, a recent uh, program. I don't think it was the last one, because last week was the uh, uh, educators panel, which is always a blast even though we were missile, missing Basel last week. Um, but I talked about it the week before, I think, and that was when I was talking about the distinction between models of intervention that are based on a traditional definition of function, and that traditional definition is that the behavior is working, the kid's challenging behavior is working at helping him get, escape, or avoid, and that's what a lot of folks mean by function, 
when they say uh, function, or um, versus the collaborative problem-solving definition of the word function. And the collaborative problem-solving definition of function is that a child's challenging behavior simply communicates to us that he's lacking the skills to perform behaviors that are more adaptive. So here's what often happens. We adults decide that the child's behavior is working for him. It's getting him something, and the the usual cliche there is attention. Or it's helping him escape or avoid something, homework, um, being in Mrs. Johnson's English class, being in school altogether. And um, that's a completely different definition of function. When you have the traditional definition of function, the goal of intervention is to prove the kid to the kid that his challenging behavior is not going to work, and that message, of course, is usually delivered in the form of punishment, and to uh, train the kid to exhibit or evidence replacement behaviors that we adults believe will work better. From a collaborative problem-solving perspective, and this goes to uh, what um, the caller and I were talking about earlier, when you have a kids do all if they can mentality, and that's the mentality of collaborative problem solving, then you believe that if the kid could do well, he would do well. If he had the skills to do well, he would do well. If he was able to exhibit replacement behaviors, he would exhibit replacement behaviors. And it's not that he doesn't necessarily know what those replacement behaviors are, although that is sometimes the case. I find that it's not necessarily usually the case. So in other words, it's not that he doesn't know the replacement behavior. It's that he's lacking the skill to perform them. So I don't necessarily agree that the new skill has to be reinforced when you see it. I think that when you're collaborating with kids on solving problems, um, you and the kid are coming up together with a plan for more adaptive behavior to be exhibited because you now well understand why the kid wasn't exhibiting adaptive behavior in the first place. You figured that out because you identified his lagging skills and you identified unsolved problems, the specific conditions in which the kid is exhibiting challenging behavior, and you did the empathy step on some of those unsolved problems and therefore came to a much clearer understanding of what's getting in the kid's way. You have a kid now who is invested in the process. He's feeling understood. He's feeling heard. You have a kid who is a party to the solution. Now, that's not training replacement behaviors in the way that it's traditionally done. That's collaborating with a student so as to come up with an alternative plan that you and the student believe will work better. So far, no rewards. So far, no punishments. I think things getting better is reinforcing. So I don't think adults need to be at the ready to reward a kid for exhibiting behaviors that you and he, for for, for participating in a solution, for following through on his end of the solution that you and he agreed um, together after a clear understanding of what was getting in his way in the first place 
what the solution would be. I don't think you need um, reinforcement strategies for that. I think things getting better is about as reinforcing as it gets. That's why I don't recommend that people reward kids for participating in Plan B. I don't recommend that people formally reward kids for sticking with a solution that they agree to any more than I recommend that people reward adults for sticking to solutions that they agree to. This is a collaborative process. We're a team. We're not enemies. This is not something we're doing to the kid. It's something we're doing with him. Yeah, I guess if it was something we were doing to him, we'd want to reinforce him for exhibiting behaviors that he wasn't a party to even thinking about in the first place and wasn't a party to agreeing to because all the whole setup's wrong. The whole setup is us deciding what's the matter, us deciding what he should do instead, and us deciding that we're going to reward him when he does what we want him to in the first place. We've decided what's adaptive, we adults, without any understanding whatsoever of what was getting in the kid's way in the first place. That's not collaborative problem solving. So I'm not uh, being harsh on the person who sent the email. I'm extremely grateful that you sent the email. It permitted me to make some of my favorite points, but I must say I don't know that I'm going to be able to help up with the question because I don't have any reading or ideas on how to combine collaborative problem solving and reinforcement programs. When you're doing collaborative problem solving, I'm not exactly sure what it is that you'd be rewarding the kid for doing. Thanks for your question, though. There's another one, and this is the one that I thought we would spend a little bit of time on here today. Uh, Two of them. I'm going to answer two emails uh, with the same answer. How about that? Here's email number one. We are looking for strategies to implement Plan B with preschool students who are nonverbal and or have very limited communication skills. Um, For example, if a student has issues with control of a situation... How do we implement Plan B when he is most often trying to control what's going on? Also, when students are nonverbal, the function of the behavior is teacher-perceived. Therefore, how do we achieve a collaborative effort if the student is unable to give us input? Great questions. Um, Although I would say that I'm I'm unlikely to describe that a student is trying to control what's going on, because I think that we're all trying to control what's going on. Um, Here's another one. Um, I've been reading about collaborative problem solving and work with many kids who lack skills in the areas you outline. I'm trying to understand how to use Plan B with kids who do not have advanced verbal skills. Do you have any examples of how CPS works in the classroom with three- and four-year-olds? Yeah, man, but here's the interesting thing. This is, as I always say, this is not a matter of chronological age. It's a matter of uh, communication and language processing skills. So there are some three- and four-year-olds that I've done Plan B with who came along much more rapidly and much more readily than some 17- and 18-year-olds that I've worked with, than some 37- and 38-year-olds that I've worked with. This is not an issue of chronological age. It's an issue of communication and language processing skills. So here's the deal. You know, in most renditions of Plan B that I put out there, whether it's in video or in books, uh, those examples of Plan B do involve uh, a meaningful level of linguistic give and take. 
there is language involved in us uh, pointing out to a student what we've noticed, and um, they have to understand what we're saying. They have to understand what we're talking about. And there is language involved when they are organizing, formulating a response that's usually done in language in their heads and articulating that response in words. That's what's coming out of their mouths. There is language involved in the usual rendition of Plan B when um, we are telling the student what our concern is on the same unsolved problem. They've got to understand what we're saying. They've got to begin formulating that and digesting it. That is often something that is done in language. And then they've got to use language to formulate potential solutions, verbalize those potential solutions, engage in give and take linguistically so as to understand what we're saying, what our concerns are about their solutions, whether those solutions, about our solutions even, whether the solutions need to be modified and refined. Yes, that's all strongly language-based. So now comes the big question. Can any of that be done in kids who have limited or no verbal communication skills? And the answer is yes. And uh, on a future program, I've been trying to arrange this for quite some time, but on a future program, we're actually going to have a guest from a school where this is the predominant type of student who they work with. And we're going to hear a little bit about what they do in their program. But let me give you a little bit of a uh, advance notice on what this looks like. Um, first of all, let me start by going back to the beginning of development, the very beginning. Um, when a child pops into this world, what's it incumbent upon the adults in that child's life to start doing? Uh, it's incumbent upon those adults to start trying to understand what that child, that infant, is trying to communicate. And, of course, babies who just pop out don't have any words. What they have is crying, faces, but the job is the same. We need to try to understand what the child is telling us. And, of course, in infants, you know, sometimes that's easy to get a handle on and sometimes that's not so easy to get a handle on. If it's, um, I'm hungry, pretty good chance if, if the re adult who's uh, trying to respond to that infant is, um, you know, on their game, and most are, they're going to provide the infant with food. If the adult is thinking, wow, you know, it looks like uh, it's cold out. I wonder if he's cold. Then the adult is going to bundle that infant up. The adult is going to pay attention to cues that say, wow, you know, he looks like he's kind of hot. He's all red in there. His uh, face is all red. I wonder if he's hot. And the adult is going to uh, see if they can uh, respond to the infant being hot or I think my infant's tired, or I think my infant wants to be held, or I think that my infant, um, well, who knows? The the range of possibilities with infants is fairly limited, but the job of the adult is to understand what this little human being who has no words is trying to tell us. And the job of the adult is to try to be responsive to whatever it is that they're trying to figure out. And, of course, if they can't figure it out right from the get-go, they're going to keep trying to figure it out until they can figure it out. 
All right. In other words, the adult is going to try to understand what the infant is trying to communicate, even though the infant does not have words. Try to figure it out based on nonverbal cues, based on observations about the situations in which the infant does get agitated or upset and conditions in which the infant is perfectly happy and placid. It's no different when you're working with a child with behavioral challenges and you're trying to figure out what's going on with them. They may not be able to communicate in words, and of course, adults prefer words. It's our preferred mode of communicating. So we like when kids can communicate in words. Nothing nothing better than an articulate kid who can tell you what's the matter, because then you can be responsive to it, if that's what you're trying to be. And collaborative problem solving begins with trying to understand what's upsetting the kid, what's getting in the kid's way, etc., So there may be parts of collaborative problem solving that a kid who is unable to communicate with words has a harder time with. Now comes the first question. All right. We're probably kind of limited in terms of what we teach infants to do. Not quite so limited as you might think, but are there ways that we can take a three- or four-year-old or a much older child who's language processing skills are limited. Are there creative ways that we can find for that uh, child to communicate concerns to us? And can we, even if it's not going to be with words, and can we find ways that help that child get better at it over time so that this whole enterprise of communicating concerns and identifying unsolved problems doesn't stay this hard forever. That's the challenge. And how might we do that? Well, thanks to technology, we might be able to use visual images to create a menu. Uh, And sometimes I use Google images um, to download potential pictures of things that could be the matter. And yes, in this instance, it may not be that the kid is able to communicate in words what specifically is the matter about what's the matter, but there are a variety of fairly basic concerns that the child would be able to communicate to us by pointing at pictures that we have created for them in a menu format. Often I use Google Images to come up with images that um, will depict in pictures the unsolved problems that we have noticed through keen observation, perhaps by keeping track for a week, perhaps by keeping a log of when the kid is getting upset and what the kid seems to be getting upset about. And so often my first challenge, and it doesn't have to be in pictures, but that's my preferred mechanism, is to use our excellent observational skills to create a menu of visual images so that the child need only point at the visual image of what's the matter at a particular moment. I was talking with a mom recently, and she was saying to me, I would like to be off 
I, I would like there not to be so much pressure for me to figure out what my relatively but not completely non-verbal child is telling me is the matter is the matter when my relatively non-verbal child doesn't have the skills to let me know that. I said, well, not only can we do it in pictures, which I just described, we can also think about the array of things that the child is frequently frustrated about and condense them into a list of perhaps three or four or five uh, global unsolved problems. For example, um, something didn't happen that I thought was going to happen. For example, something did happen that I didn't think was going to happen. Um, for example, I got surprised. Um, for example, things are not going the way I thought they would. It's often possible to condense the variety of things that are unsolved problems into a short list of four or five general categories. And then we might be able to teach this child to point at a pictorial depiction of that global unsolved problem and, at the, and even perhaps start to use words or numbers or some sort of signal for letting us know that that's what it is. And that, at the very least, would um, confine the range of things that uh, can find the range of possibilities for what was the matter at that particular moment and then at least make guessing a little bit easier. Now, this particular child, and of course they're all different, but this particular child um, has reasonably intact receptive language skills, not reasonably intact expressive language skills. He's better at understanding what we're saying than he is at putting his own thoughts into words. Therefore, with him, guessing is sort of okay because he confirms, he could confirm or deny our guess. But this is a mom who was saying to me, uh, you know, at least make guessing a little bit easier for me. All right, that was my suggestion for how to make guessing easier for her. But the bottom line here is creativity, our creativity, is really the uh, only constraining factor because all we're looking to do here as a substitute for the verbal give and take of the empathy step is find some way to organize, identify, and find some way for a child to communicate what's the matter right now. Another place that pictures can sometimes come in is in the uh, invitation where we can also use pictures to um, depict a variety of different solutions. But the preference is to organize those solutions by the unsolved problems that they are intended to address. Um, just lost my train of thought here because I was rereading one of the emails just trying to make sure that I answer all of the questions that were in them. Um, we want to make a connection for the student between the solutions and the unsolved problems from which those solutions flow. So what I often recommend is that we find some mechanism, and I sometimes do this in a binder that has sections in it, 
for creating sections that have solutions that are pegged to the unsolved problems that were depicted pictorially previously. And then the child starts to make the connection between unsolved problem and potential solution. And that can be done in pictures as well. So let me just make sure I'm answering the questions here. Um, the, the, the One of our emailers said, pictures are not sometimes effective either. Um, well, I'm not sure what to make of that. Um, my my uh, quick take on that is that it may be that um, we need to observe better so that we can get a better handle on what it is that might be setting the child off. And, of course, this is where this becomes much more challenging because, um, yes, there is some level of intuition involved. Uh, a, a completely nonverbal student may not be able to tell us um, what exactly is the matter, but as I just described, we might be able to confine the range of things that could be the matter to a more finite list that the student actually is able to communicate. But the, but I, what I wouldn't conclude is that the student is um, not responding to the pictures because he's often to, trying to control what's going on. He's trying to control what's going on because presumably because he's lacking the communication and language skills to engage in the type of give and take that would even be involved to um, go about trying to control things in a more adaptive fashion, shall we say. Yes, it's true. When students are nonverbal, the function of the behavior is teacher-perceived, but the function, as we've just talked about, isn't um, getting, escaping, or avoiding. The student is letting us know that he's lacking the skills to respond to a problem or frustration more adaptively than he is. Not trying to get, escape, or avoid. Not in the ultimate level of analysis. And I think that if we use the ways that I've just described, we can often set the stage for the student to give us more input than we may believe the student is able to provide. Bottom line is, he may be completely bereft of words, but grunting is communicating. Growling is communicating. Once again, it's not it's not our preference because we adults prefer words, but if we have excellent observational skills and we are working with the student to try to figure out what general parameters of concerns the student might have on a particular unsolved problem, I think we're going to figure it out. And the student is going to let us know when we didn't. Of course, all of this is much better done proactively. That's why we want to make a log. That's why we want to um, come up with a list of unsolved problems based on our observations. Um, we want to do all of this proactively. Um, it's not ideally done emergently. Let's face it. Let me make sure I'm answering all of the other questions. Uh, so uh, the, the question on the other email is, do I have any examples of how CPS works in the classroom with three- and four-year-olds? You know, I think that it's much more basic. I think that you are um, teaching the entire class of three- and four-year-olds um, about what a concern is and giving examples. 
about what an unsolved problem is and giving examples, about how adults have concerns and giving examples, uh, what might adult concerns be. Hmm, very basically, the same as adult concerns would be with a 17-year-old, how an unsolved problem is affecting an individual kid, how an unsolved problem is affecting others. Most three- and four-year-olds can get that. And most three- and four-year-olds, if you provide them with um, examples of what their concerns might be, uh, they don't want to get hurt. They want to feel safe. They want things to be fair. We can provide the entire class with examples of what adult and child concerns might be, and then we can give them lots of examples before we start doing Plan B of what some solutions might look like that take both concerns into account. And at a conceptual level, many three-year-olds can comprehend all of that. And then, strategically, we're simply deciding on a particular unsolved problem. Is this an unsolved problem that affects the entire group, and therefore do we want to have a group Plan B discussion? And if you're doing that, then, of course, some group discussion skills would need to be trained, taking turns, listening. Or do we want to do Plan B on a particular unsolved problem with an individual child because it's not something we think is important or, or um, appropriate to be discussing within the entire group. We think that this is an individual one. Um, you know, every three or four-year-old that I've come across, some of them with uh, intact language processing skills and some of them not, they all appreciate it when adults are trying to understand what their concerns are, even when it's frustrating. They appreciate that an adult is trying to understand what their concerns are. Even when, on a particular unsolved problem, it can sometimes take a really long time and they're going to get really frustrated because we can't quite understand what they're trying to tell us. They do appreciate that we're trying to figure out what their concerns are. I've found that in every three- and four-year-old that I've worked with. I've found that in every infant that I've come across. And I find that in my 99-year-old grandmother, who will be celebrating her 99th birthday this weekend. Um, she likes it when we try to figure out what her concerns are and when we try to be responsive to those concerns as well. I, you know, I guess it's something you never outgrow and I guess it's something um, that you need from the minute you pop into the world. The only thing we add developmentally, well, we add many things along the way developmentally, but one of the most crucial things we add developmentally along the way is the ability to use words. And by golly, if words have not come along in a particular child's development, then it's only our creativity that's going to limit us in terms of trying to find ways to still find out what that child's unsolved problems are. That's our astute observations. What that child's concerns are, we can um, make that easier for the child by categorizing concerns, by depicting them in pictures, and helping an individual, three or four, 
99, participate in the process of thinking about solutions and participate in the process of coming up with solutions that are mutually satisfactory. Yes, it's hard and it takes longer with a child who is lacking language processing and communication skills. But one of these days when I'm able to arrange uh, to have one of these people on the program, we'll talk with somebody in a school that does this routinely, and you can hear it from somebody who does it even more routinely than I do. On that note, I think we're going to call it a day for today's Collaborative Problem Solving at School. I want to thank Joining in today, I'm on the verge of announcing something very exciting. I'm not talking about the educators panel. That's exciting as it is, but something very exciting that we're going to be doing for the next five months on this program. Once it's finalized, I can't wait to tell you about it. In the meantime, thanks for joining in today. I hope you have found the program to be useful. Email me with any questions you want me to answer. Good luck with collaborative problem solving this week. Take care. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.